Hey everyone, you are listening to the Divergent Conversations podcast. We are two neurodivergent mental health professionals in a neurotypical world. I'm Patrick Cassell. And I'm Dr. Neff. And during these episodes, we do talk about sensitive subjects, mental health, and there are some conversations that can certainly feel a bit overwhelming. So we do just want to use that disclosure and disclaimer before jumping in. And thanks for listening. As autistic ADHD business owners, Patrick and I both understand the importance of promotion and doing it in a way that feels authentic and genuine. If you are a neurodivergent business owner and you would like to place your services or products in front of a neurodivergent audience, we are now opening up our podcast for sponsorships and we're providing a 10% discount code for neurodivergent business owners. So if you are an autistic or ADHD business owner, and you'd like to get in front of our audience, reach out to Divergent Conversations Podcast at gmail.com for more information. So this is part two of our identity conversation. If you tuned in last week, Megan and I talked about identity from a pretty nuanced uh, lens, both clinically and professionally and personally. And today we are going to focus more on questions that came into our Divergent Conversations Instagram account and Megan's Neurodivergent Insights email. So Megan, what you got? Yeah, so we got a lot of questions that came in around identity and masking or unmasking, which makes just so much sense to me based on our conversation last week about how unmasking often triggers a whole identity crisis. Um, and then we have some other questions. So we'll all shoot off with the first question. There's a lot of questions in it. So I'll go ahead and read it all, but maybe we can break it apart. Um, so can you please do an episode on figuring out who the real you is? I'm torn about the whole concept of unmasking because I actually love the life I have and have created while being masked. However, it's taking a huge toll on my health, anxiety, depression, illness after illness, fatigue. How do I maintain the beautiful life I have, but still be my authentic self to model for my neurodivergent kids? How do you know who you really are? So there's a lot in that. that Your face is like, question. yeah. And I, I, I mean, I think we should break it up. Yeah. Um, I'll start with the first part of the question. And I think this is why I was drawn to this question of um, like what happens when you actually really like the life you've created as a through your autistic mask. And I actually relate to this. You know, I have a draft of a reel from like 18 months ago. I never I never hit publish, which I think is interesting. But the reel I made was basically about how sometimes I miss my old life. Um and that's actually true for me. I, I wouldn't go back, but there were things, there was a life my masked self created. I feel like I, I couldn't do now. Like partly I, I, this stamina, now that I know what it's like to live unmasked, I just wouldn't have the stamina for it. But like the idea of having a career in academia, that, cause I, that was kind of the trajectory I was going. My mask self is the person who created that, or even how, like I was a lot more social. There are things I do miss about my old life, and that's complicated. Yeah. You have um, mentioned plenty of times on the podcast mm -hmm. how your life feels kind of 
insulated and small in a lot of ways, socially mm-hmm. especially, I think. So I think like it makes so much sense to say I miss certain components of this life that I had that I either am grieving that I can no longer kind of withstand or or accept or tolerate. I don't know. That's not the right word. But I think what I'm trying to say is like the right, like there are portions of life where you're going to grieve the fact that you can no longer participate in them the way that you used to. And it makes so much sense with this person saying about like, I'm getting fatigued, I'm getting sick, I'm getting mm-hmm. really burnt out, I'm getting really tired. And it so often for so many of us becomes like one or the other. Like you either prioritize and protect your energy and you say, I can no longer participate in A, B, C, D, E, F, G, which so many people don't want to do and understandably so, or I continue to push myself through mm-hmm. this uh, this life that I've created and live in, and the the cost is all of the health concerns, all of the fatigue, all of the energy, uh, which can then lead to what substance use struggles with, you know, just stress tolerance, struggles in relationships, struggles in the family system, etc. And I think. Unfortunately, so many people have to choose one or the other. It doesn't seem like there's a good middle ground for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, and that probably ties back into kind of our all or nothing thinking patterns. Of, and I, I definitely feel like I fell into that of like just creating like I'm done. Like I'm done with all of it. Um, washing my hands of it. And yeah, so moderation, like creating a life with moderation is really hard um that's something it's interesting that's something luke my husband will say to be a lot of like you just don't do moderation yeah like yeah, I'm, oh, yeah. i do extremes um yeah, and so it's one or yeah. the other it's black and white <laughs> in so many ways um which sucks because it's, yeah if you could find the gray if you could come a little closer from one or the other we could probably have more of the things that we grieve losing when <laughs> we realize like this is what I have to do in order to survive or protect my energy or mm-hmm. capacity. This is going to be a divergent moment and it may not make a lot of sense and I hope that it will. I've openly talked about my history with gambling addiction. For a lot of people who go through recovery and, and sustained recovery, there is grief of your old life. Mm-hmm. There is a grief mm-hmm. process of the people you used to spend time with, the places mm-hmm. you used to go, the rituals, the activities, the familiarities, because it becomes so deeply ingrained and embedded in terms of like expectation, what to look forward to, familiarity, comfortability, et cetera. And it becomes routine and it becomes habitual. And it's so hard because you grieve, even though you know how painful and devastating and, and, and um, negative it is for you, you still grieve it anyway. And I almost associate the two in some ways of like grieving the unmasked version of you after you've mm-hmm. created this masked version of your life that you do enjoy in a lot of ways and areas. I, I love that. That First of all, I think that actually connects really well. And I appreciate you sharing that about kind of grieving. I haven't heard that language before, but I really like that. That resonates. Um, but we're, oh, yeah, the grieving the masked self. Um, I think I sometimes talk about like burying the mass self, like before we can truly address our internalized ableism and live into ourselves, we have to bury 
our mask self. We have to grieve who we, I guess, part of us wanted to be, right? Like part of me absolutely wanted to be that mask, this kind of academic public, someone who's comfortable with public speaking, like who can go to conferences with ease. Like I wanted to be that version of me. There's part of me did. Um, so absolutely there has been grief while there's been liberation. There's also been grief. And I would say I hold the liberation in one hand and the grief in the other hand throughout this process. That's so well said. And I, I agree a hundred percent that the, I grieve the masked version of me who was like really social and outgoing and could go to lots of networking events within my community because I love connecting with people. I just have had to really change the way I connect and mm -hmm. in which venues, in which capacities. And again, we've said this so many times and people keep asking for it, but I had to rely on alcohol to live a masked version of myself, mm -hmm. to be able to show up socially, to be able to network, to be able to go to these events every night of the week. I had to rely on substance use to sustain my yeah. abilities to show up. And then the other side of the coin is everything that comes with that in terms of, you know, mm -hmm. sleep deprivation, depression, anxiety, dependency, all the things. Yeah. And it, it just becomes too much. So yeah. Yeah. I, I do agree with this grief liberation, holding them in both hands mm -hmm. of like, and I, we've talked about this a mil million times, like grieving just like what you thought you could have accomplished mm -hmm. or done as a child yeah. or a teenager or a young adult, like what you romanticized about like your life becoming and looking like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One thing I appreciate about what you just said, it, it kind of was like a reality shake for me. I think, especially as I, I'm almost three years out, like, especially as I get more distance from my old life. And for me, like old life, new life, like 2020, like the pandemic was a really concrete marker of old life, new life. Yeah. Um, I I think there's a tendency to idealize my old life a little bit of like what I was capable of, what I... um what life was like. But if I, if I really go back, the reality was, yes, I could, I, I could go to conferences with more ease. Right now, I think a conference would totally overwhelm me um, and it would be a struggle. So there were things I could do, but I would come home and I would crash and I was not a very present mother. And I would come home from a social situation and that's when I would drink. I also struggled with alcohol in the past with my, when I was masking more. Um, because, and I didn't have language for it, but I was trying to self-soothe from the sensory overwhelm. Um, so any, after a sensory rich day, which was five days a week, I would be overstimulated. I'd be so fatigued. I'd be misusing alcohol. And it's, it actually is easy for me to forget those pieces when I, I can get into a headspace where I'm idealizing what I the language, it's interesting. The language I'm using, I don't know if I agree with it, is what I used to be capable of. I'm putting air quotes around that. But I think that's the narrative that sometimes come on, comes on for me of like, I used to do things that now feel really, really hard for me to do. And I'm not sure how much it's because I'm more self-aware of my body now and how much, like if I, I, I've just kind of 
lost the conditioning to survive these terrible things. Um, but yeah, that was a lot of complicated thoughts thrown at you, Patrick. It's interesting, you know, like we've been on episodes where I feel like my brain is just not processing well and I'm very slow to pick up on what we're talking about. And right now it's like supercharged. Um, so I just picked up on everything you said and I have so many responses to what you said. So I'm trying to like collect myself. But I think almost what I'm hearing you say is like, there's this, there's this grief of like air quote capable of or what it used to look like. Mm -hmm. But I think that your liberation side is like this understanding of like, look at this life you've created by not participating in what you used to feel really energized by and quote unquote capable of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I know I'm, uh, I know I, I feel much more aligned with myself. I have, I still have, because of long, and long COVID is just a huge factor. I don't know. I imagine if that wasn't a factor and I'd feel a ton better. But I sure. do struggle less. I still struggle with fatigue, but less than I did. Um, I'm able to live an alcohol-free life. like, And that was something that was really hard to do in, in my old life. Um, I don't even know what I was answering, but... This liberation that you now experience, because if you draw that line in the sand of like COVID 2020, this is when life has really shifted for me. Mm -hmm. What I've also heard you talk about very publicly is how you show up as a mother, how you show up as a partner, what you've been able to create in your business, how you've been able to show up in terms of advocacy effort. And I wonder if that ever happens, if COVID one, one COVID doesn't happen, two, if you're still in academia and like going to conferences and like pushing yourself so damn hard all the yeah. time, yeah. I imagine this version of you isn't here and it's yeah, a shell I think, of itself. I think, and I think the price, it's interesting. This is the first time I'm putting this in words. I think the price where I really would have paid the most is in my parenting and, and yep. in my health. If I absolutely have, yeah, yeah. So that is a very, very, very elongated response to that question that was just asked by that person on, it, yes. on your email. Yeah. Well, and I, and, I, and I I love that these questions can kind of <clears throat> become a springboard to diverge into conversations. Yeah. yeah. So we appreciate that question mm -hmm. very much. Yeah. And then the second part was about maintaining the beautiful life and living authentically. Um, I think that's finding the Goldilocks of moderation, which good luck with that. Um, if you figure it out, come tell us how to do it. I think that's what we're all seeking, right? Is like, how do I maintain this thing that feels so elusive to me yet mm -hmm. with the complete understanding that I cannot sustain this in this capacity? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's actually pacing systems. And I know Mel, I don't think they talked about it on the podcast they were on, but on their website, and Mel was the autistic physician. I know they also talk about pacing systems. I talk about pacing systems a lot too. Um, I think finding a pacing system, and there's a lot of different kinds. I have three that I talk about a lot, spoon theory, the traffic light system, and then energy accounting. Um, using a pacing system to help pace your energy expenditure it's good for anyone with chronic illness, but it's also really helpful for neurodivergent people. And that can help with the moderation. Um, so I, I would throw pacing systems into the recommendations there. I'm going to throw my two cents in on top of that, mm -hmm. if that's okay. Of course. Um, 
I think that what Megan and I said, black and white thinking, right? Especially concrete thinking. Even if you're able to, if you want to maintain some portion of this existence in this life, it's about like picking and choosing the moments that are important to you, picking and choosing the things that you want to put your energy into, which is exactly what Megan's saying in terms of pacing systems. But really, that's that's what that's how I would envision it and conceptualize it is like if I took a step back and examined life from at, for what it is right now, what are the places that I can put my energy into mm-hmm. knowing that it still gives me a return versus like mm-hmm. saying yes to everything, people pleasing, showing up to every event, showing up to every social obligation. We all think I don't think that's going to work very well. I think that just continues to perpetuate the burnout, the depression, the fatigue, the anxiety. So. Absolutely. Um, that reminds me of another exercise. I used to use this a lot when I worked in healthcare settings with people. It's called a value compass. And it's, if you think about like 10 boxes and it's got different kind of domains of your life. So maybe family, parenting, partnership, uh, school, work, um, spirituality, physical health, like different domains. And then you rank on a one to 10 scale, how high of a value is it? And then you go back and you rank how much effort are you putting into it? And then you look for gaps. So let's say work is a three value for you, but you're putting in 10 effort. That's a big gap. If parenting is like a 10 value, but you're putting in two effort, that's a big gap. Your quality of life is going to be lower if we're not expending our energy where our values are. Um, So the life compass kind of value map, overlaying that on top of a pacing system in my mind is like the ideal path for figuring out this moderation piece. I agree 100%. Okay. Uh, Next question. How can you find your own identity slash personality after late diagnosis and constant high masking? Um, I've got thoughts, but I'll, I'll let you have first go a few of thoughts. My thoughts were going to be that you have thoughts. Um, (laughs) I was going to say in our first episode, you kind of alluded to this with your first step of your workbook that you have. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if you want to elaborate on that because I think that's maybe where Mm -hmm. you're going to go anyway. You uh, read my energy or read my mind. Yeah, pleasure and play, which is where we left off in the last episode. I think chase your pleasure with curiosity Um, because, and that gets back to when we mask we are typically queuing into the experiences of the people around us. And then that is informing how we're going to show up. And so that can mess with like knowing what our preferences are, knowing what our desires are, knowing what brings us joy, what brings us delight, what we don't like. Um, secondly, a lot of us respond to the overstimulation through dissociating from our body, which again, dissociates us from pleasure. And so starting with following your pleasure and your interests, I think are really um, concrete and powerful ways to start exploring your identity. Yep. That was basically what I was going to say. Great answer. So basically go back and listen to the last episode. If you have that question. Yep. Um, okay. Next question. This is actually pretty much the same question. When you realize you're a headmasker, the question of who you are really arises. And I don't know. Um, I actually don't have much new to add to that. To what the, do you, Patrick? Kind of same. Same answer. 
Yeah. Same answer. What Megan just said, and and just listen to our last episode. Um, I think we broke that down pretty, pretty succinctly. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. So this is getting away from masking. So we're diverging. Um. I really like this question though. Um. So since my own diagnosis, things that I thought were my personality, I've since learned are probably autism. Not so much ADHD because that feels separate from personality. Okay. We should just tag that piece to talk about at some point, Patrick. Back to the question. So I have been in a bit of an identity crisis, wondering what is me and who am I? What I thought is my personality is actually autism. Then what is my personality? Is it my special interest, my unique combination of autistic traits? I have no answers, but this might be, oh, I read too far. That's okay. Okay, That's the question. (laughs) That is such a good question. My, uh, yeah, you have thoughts? No, go ahead. I I think this is where like therapist me comes in where it's like, oh, both ands, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think that, yes, the answer to your question about like, is it my special interest? Is it my personality traits? Uh, are it, are, is it like autistic traits and tendencies and characteristics? Mm-hmm. Like, yes, that is a part of your identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not all of your identity. So okay. that's where the complicated, like nuanced conversation comes in is like, yeah, a lot of your identity is going to be informed by autism because of the lens that you used okay. before, the the correct lens of seeing the world in that way, in that in that light. So what are your thoughts, Megan? Yeah, I think sim- like similar vein of thought of like, just because it's connected to your autism doesn't make it any less you. Um, So there's this thing that happened in neuroscience in the last 20, 30 years, where all of a sudden we can see things on brain scans that we never thought we should be able to see, like empathy, love, like, like the experience of love. And what started happening was this almost reductionistic narrative that because we can pinpoint it to brain circus circuits, it somehow takes away from the experience of love or empathy because we can scientifically decode it. So there's, once we can pinpoint the cause of something scientifically, the temptation is to develop a reductionistic narrative around it. And I could see the same thing here, just because perhaps your social justice is driven by an autistic trait doesn't take away from the fact that that's part of you we understand it better but so I I think I'd what I often caution people from is falling into that trap of that reductionistic thinking that because we can understand it it's now reduced to that right I, I it also brings to mind like this is what I used to see a lot of in when I worked in crisis units and crisis centers people who maybe suffer or struggle with bipolar disorder and there's this tendency to say my behavior, the, my action is because of my bipolar, the bipolar disorder, right? Like my action my, is because of my mania. Probably true in some instances, but not all instances. Like, so not allowing for, so often we we default to that. Like I did this thing because of this thing. I showed up this way because of this. And I think that it's really easy to then default to, I only see the world and lens or the world through 
this newfound autistic diagnosis. And that's something that I myself definitely experienced for the first year of like discovery because you want to start looking at everything from different angles and perspectives and per and um and perceptions. So I think it's it's quite normal for that to default to this is how I start to envision and see the world and, and my place in it. Yeah. And so I'll share some of my personal experience with this because I actually experienced something similar. Um, Post-discovery, one of the things, you know, my husband and I were talking a bit <clears throat> about like our early dating and our, our, our marriage, frankly, of just like, wow, this lens kind of unlocks a lot. And one of the things I was realizing is that a lot of the reason my spouse was initially attracted to me was actually autistic traits, right? Like I was, I was willing to question social norms within the very fundamentalist tradition we were in. Um, I was outspoken and again, being an outspoken girl in fundamentalism, um, that, that was something that was attractive to him and not necessarily super common. Um, my love of ideas and philosophy, my directness was something that my spouse was drawn to. And so I had this moment of, does it take away, because, because these are autistic traits, does that take away from them being Megan Anna? Right. And so was he like, does it change the narrative if it's like, well, he was drawn to me because of my autism, not me. But again, that's that reductionistic narrative of separating my autistic traits from who I am. But I, I do think it's a natural as part of the unpacking process to have these kinds of questions come up. Absolutely. Okay, I feel us diverging from this. Where do you want to diverge to? I don't know. Um, we have the ADHD therapist question, but that gets more into therapy identity. Yeah, I think that because we went so in-depth on episode one of this series of just talking about identity, it's really important, again, to just be curious about these things. And I think that these questions are really common. That's, that's one thing we want to really highlight and normalize is just the fact that, like, this is a part of the discovery process. You're going to have a lot of questions and curiosities and confusion when you experience a new diagnosis, especially one that is pretty life-altering in a lot of ways. It doesn't change childhood experience, teenage years, like all of that stuff is still your own experience, regardless of the diagnosis or not. It's just putting a newfound lens and understanding and perspective to life. And I think with that comes a lot of questioning. And I think that's really, really normal. I call it the dresser drawer. So again, I, um, I think more in images than words. So when I was first experiencing this, and, and at the point I actually... I bumped up my therapy from once weekly to twice weekly in the first three months post-discovery. And that was super helpful for me. Um, but I, the metaphor I came up with to describe it to my therapist was like a dresser. Because what I was visually picturing was opening a dresser, like opening a drawer, unpacking it through this new lens, closing it, opening another drawer. So like opening early child experiences, opening all past romantic relationships, opening social experiences, like opening different stages of our life. There's so many drawers that we're opening and sifting through often frantically in those first, especially those first few months. I just, 
I remember feeling like my head was buzzing constantly. I wish I'd written more down because it'd be, I was just getting like aha moment after aha moment in those first few months. I agree a hundred percent. I think that's a wonderful like way to conceptualize it through that image um, because I was doing the same thing and I think I was doing the same thing. I still do the same thing from time to time, just not as frequently now that I have better understanding. But at first you really do. It's almost like unpacking a suitcase. Like you are taking everything out and look, taking a look at it and like then you're putting it away because you're like, okay, now that makes sense. Oh, that social experience makes sense. Oh, like this this way that I felt about, you know, A, B, and C makes sense. The way I experienced childhood makes more sense. Like everything starts to, you start to see it from a completely different lens and light. And, but that, that process can also be unbelievably exhausting, unbelievably confusing. If you don't have support in place, like that is first and foremost, I think that's so important to to highlight as well. <laughs> yeah. I think that is a great time to, if possible, work with a therapist, if not already, just I get this feedback. Some of the feedback I get a lot is like the people in my life are tired of hearing about this um, because it it kind of, you know, I've talked about this before where special interests become like our lens. So there's often a lot happening in those first three to six months. Like A, we're going through the dresser, we're opening all the drawers. So a lot of our energy is going to that. B, for a lot of people, autism or ADHD becomes a special interest. So we're researching and we're reading and we're intaking a ton of information. And then we want to talk about it a ton. So this, the, oh, back to like feedback I get. People are tired of hearing about it. But the other one I get is like people saying, I feel like I'm kind of manic right now or people are telling me I'm kind of manic. And it's this flight of ideas as you're unpacking paired with special interest energy, paired with like a huge epiphany, which can cause us like surge of energy, Um, not always positive, some some positive energy, some kind of agitated. And so it's a, it's a whirlwind. A whirlwind is a good word for it to describe the experience. So I just, you know, I think if any of you are listening and you're relating or resonating, or you're feeling like, why, what is happening to me during this this post-diagnostic discovery period of my life, it makes a lot of sense, both clinically from like mental health perspectives and personally. I think it makes a lot of sense. And I do think that you start to see the world in different shades after this happens. And I think you start to see the world in everything that you do. And that can be challenging if you start to think about like every action every action like you're you're kind of dissecting it and kind of examining it that's kind of my process so it can be quite mentally exhausting when every response to an email every time you start to experience like like this anxiety around receiving messages every time you go out socially you experience a b and c like it's a lot to take in so it's just give yourself grace throughout this process because it's it is a life altering and life-changing experience. Yeah. Um, okay, this is going to divert just a little bit, but can we talk a little bit about pendulum swings? Um, and this gets into a, a question that also comes up in some of the consulting work I do. I'm curious if you see this. So when someone, they, f- they find this identity, it's for a lot of people, not for everyone, but for a lot of people, it's really validating, it's really liberating. 
and then they get plugged in to autistic or ADHD culture. Um, and then there is almost a, so social, social justice values come online, but almost a like anger that they, some people get trapped in of like a defensive anger to where everything is like, oh, that's ableism, that's ableism, that's ableism. And there's a ton of projection that then starts happening to the people around them to, um, I, I think they're probably working through their anger and grief, but it's showing up in a way that's not really working for that person very well or working for their key relationships. So they've almost pendulum swung from like fawn response to fight response and then get stuck there. Um, and I actually think I want to, first of all, I want to normalize if we were to map out developmental process post-discovery, I actually think it's really developmentally appropriate to swing over to fight mode. I, I then see a progression for some people, not for everyone, where they're able to integrate it in a way and kind of get out of that fight mode. Okay, I'm going to pause just to, first of all, is any of this making sense? Is any of this resonating with you? Makes perfect sense. I actually have several people in my mind who are immediately coming to mind. Uh, and I, it, like you said, it makes sense when the pendulum swings from fawn response to fight response, and it makes sense why there's anger and it makes sense why you want to stand up for not only yourself, but your newfound community. I think it makes a ton of sense. And we all know that autistic people and social justice mm -hmm. go hand in hand. So it, but it's so easy to get stuck in the anger and it's so easy for, and, th and this is how I see it show up. Um, I moderate a large Facebook group. I see a lot of people attacking other people for language, usage okay. of language. And usually it's like someone who's like, hey, looking for a therapist in California who specializes in ASD. <laughs> then a response is immediately, actually, we don't use that language anymore. <laughs> and whatever the response is. Um, and it comes up a, a lot around the usage of language, this anger of like, get it right. Use mm -hmm. affirmative-based language, identity-based language. I think the anger is valid. I also think that there are other ways that you can have these types of conversations that don't destroy you so much because anger is an emotion that is not meant to be used 24-7. It is an exhaustive emotion. It's a part of our fight or flight response. It's a way that we show up and that we show that we care, that we're concerned. It's a way that we really can create change. But mm -hmm. like get caught in it, mm -hmm. it can destroy you emotionally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes it, sense. It, it makes so much sense. I mean, if we stay in fight mode, right? Like that is we're wrecking havoc on our nervous system. It's also like, I am so thankful for the people who were gentle with me when I first was learning. Absolutely. No one comes into this conversation knowing all the language, understanding it all. Like you and I have been in this conversation a long time. We still step in it. That's part of showing up in the world, wanting to learn is risking stepping in it. Um, and so it's also about building up culture that, is inviting, like I hear this from parents all the time of like parents who are allistic, like I want to learn from autistic adults, but I go into those spaces and I like, I'm terrified of speaking because I like said this once and then 
So it's also about creating a culture that um, is open to educating. And I and I realize like that's a loaded sentence I just said because there's labor in educating. So we've got to balance that out. Um, and and not all spaces can be education spaces. Right. Absolutely. And I I think there's even this underlying anger that can exist pretty consistently when you start to examine society and how not necessarily set up for neurodivergent people to flourish, um, to be accepted, to, to not be discriminated against. But again, mm-hmm. if it's consuming. If, it, if it, you're it, locked in it, it's, yeah, it's not about not having anger. Like right. anyone in a marginalized group ha- like should have anger. And sure. anger is not about emotion. It's energizing. It's mobilizing. But it's the getting frozen in the anger. It's getting locked in it. It yeah. is terrible for our health. Because you're and, just pumping, pumping, pumping adrenaline yeah, yeah. and cortisol through your body. And it's not, it's just not great for your nervous system. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not easy to regulate yourself when you're trapped in it. And we, we also understand that there are reasons to feel trapped in it at times. And just trying to move that pendulum a little bit to the middle, a mm-hmm. little bit, even one little space over so that it doesn't consume. Because I think when it consumes, that's where a lot of interactions go awry too, that you didn't necessarily mean to have social engagements or professional interactions go a certain way, but because you're trapped in the anger, things come across in a way where you can't always take it back. <laughs> right, right. So when you're coming from a more integrative place, it's like you're honoring the anger experience. You're, you're able to self-attune to it, but then you're also able to work through it to a degree to where like, you know, yeah, if you're in a cross neurotype interaction, you can maybe have a more effective interaction with that person that I would say actually makes the world better because maybe it's led to some education or led to some awareness. It's um, it's not perpetuated the misunderstandings that often happen cross neurotype. Right. Yeah, because I think if we're approaching conversations always with anger, people are entrenched in how they they communicate and believe in a lot of times we're not going to get a point across. We're not going to help change someone's mind. We're not going to help educate when we're in a place of anger. But if you're yeah. coming to with curiosity, uh-huh. it's, a, it's a much different experience. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I love that. Curiosity. Curiosity. I mean, last podcast we were talking about like openness versus constriction, like anger tends to constrict space. Whereas, um, curiosity tends to open space yeah and we need a lot more curiosity in this world we need a lot more dialogue and openness and um searching and and again not to dismiss anger um we we need both i agree i feel anxious about this podcast all of a sudden of like i I wish my words were working better Yeah, I think that when we start to dissect things that create and evoke and elicit emotions, right? Like we're talking about stuff that's heavy. We're talking about stuff that for a lot of people is valid. Anger is valid for a lot of people in our, in our communities. Um, especially in when we start to break down intersectionality, right? Mm -hmm. So we get that. And I think when we start to talk about this stuff we i think you and i have this propensity to try to get it right almost like i don't want to say the wrong thing right now i don't want to like have to 
then deal with the consequences mm -hmm. of like commentary and responses and feedback. Mm -hmm. So it feels normal as a human experience to be like, ooh, this is making me anxious. Yeah. I, I think what I'm realizing is making me anxious is that I feel like it could sound like I'm trying to police people's anger or their emotional response. Yeah. And like that is I I A don't want to do that. Sure. B um I want to normalize like this. This is again nuanced, right? So if we go from like anger over the neurodivergent and neurodiversity affirmative movements, um, I think that there's a lot of ways that we could have further conversations. Um, circling back to identity, I kind of think we answered the questions that we received. Now, what we will say to everyone who's listening is that we get a lot of emails and a lot of comments and a lot of DMs. And we are really, really, really thankful for all of the support. I mean, it feels like it happened immediately and it feels a bit overwhelming if, if I can just speak from my own experience. And we know we can't get to all of them, but we do read them. I do read all of the DMs and all of the comments that come in. Um, to Megan's advice, I don't respond to all of them because it's impossible. But we are going to incorporate a lot of your comments and questions into episodes. And we are going to try to do episodes based on topics that people are suggesting because we want to get to everything. And, you know, recording once a week doesn't always allow for that. I am just noticing Megan's shift in energy. Well, I've, that felt to me like a, it felt to me like you were ending the podcast. So I, I followed. Yeah, I think that's where we're at. Yes. Or unless we have other stuff to touch upon. Um, I think we're at a good place to stop. And I think that hopefully we answered your questions about identity. We know that we could not only do two episodes on identity. We could do an entire s season on identity. And we're going to have other guests on to talk about intersectionality. And I think that will also open up even more questions for dialogue around identity. And which is the beauty in these conversations is that we could diverge all day and still never have a finite response. But I love what you said about openness versus constriction when we are starting to think about identity and moving into a place of curiosity to really try to conceptualize it from that lens. Okay. Sorry. This is, this is a awkward goodbye time because... Awkward goodbye. You know, it's interesting when you are spending so much time with someone, despite never meeting them in person, being able to intuitively pick up on energy. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a blessing and a curse sometimes. For <laughs> So anyway, thank you so much for listening to the Divergent Conversations podcast. New episodes are out every single Friday on all major platforms and YouTube. Like, download, subscribe, and share. And goodbye. And now, pause for a word from our sponsors. From new patients faced with an empty lobby and no idea where to find their therapist, to clinicians with a session running overtime and the doorbell ringing, some of the most anxiety-ridden moments of a therapy appointment happen before a session even starts. This episode's sponsor, The Receptionist for iPad, helps you tackle some of that pre-appointment apprehension and anxiety. The Receptionist for iPad is an easy-to-use digital client check-in system that helps your visitors check in securely to their appointments and notify their practitioners of their arrival via SMS, email, 
or your preferred channel. No more confusion, endless lobby checking, or having clients sign in on paper logbooks. It can even help you upgrade and update your demographic information for your clients as well and even validate parking. Start a 14-day free trial of The Receptionist for iPad by going to thereceptionist.com slash private practice. Make sure to start your trial with that link and you'll also get your first month free if you decide to sign up.